It comes once a year, right? Holy Week. A special time in the life of the church when they gather together to celebrate, to remember, to make preparations for Easter. And for those who are wise, and for those who are into the the sense of the liturgical movement of the church during this time, they also come to remember that what happens between Palm Sunday and Easter is of great importance. So great that we take time off, we schedule, reschedule, and plan. We look to make the whole Lenten experience come into reality as we end up these 40 days of wandering, so to speak, with our Lord, praying as we've been doing for the past three months about the church and its direction, about the mission needs of our community, and about this last month what God has called us to do through his church here in Carrollton, Texas. But you have to tell the story, right? I don't need to tell you. You already know the story. You know the story about this Jesus who comes with the disciples and who sends them ahead to find the colt. You know the story about the people lining the roads as they hear what's going on. You know the story about him coming into Jerusalem in many ways like a conquering king, a victorious leader. And the people are there to greet him, to let them know Let him know, let others know that this is the one, this is the Messiah, their king that they had longed for. However, something funny happens along the way, except it's not really funny, but it's totally unexpected to the people in Jerusalem, even to those who were closest to Jesus. First of all, we need to take a quick look at the characters. This man, Jesus, who's coming to town, has been now wandering around an itinerant ministry, if you will for some two and a half, almost three years. He's been wandering throughout Judea and Galilee and some, even some of the sur- surrounding areas, making clear that the kingdom of God was at hand, but doing so in different kinds of ways, according to the different gospel writers. Certainly in the book of Mark, we don't find very much revealed that they can see. He speaks in ways that they seem to struggle with understanding, and at times we struggle with, why are they struggling so much? And we continue to make this struggle. But here he comes riding into Jerusalem like a king, except he's riding a colt, not even a full-grown donkey. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever owned donkeys. I don't know how many of you have ever ridden donkeys. But if you go to a donkey basketball game in the community at a local gym for a fundraiser, which I was doing in some of those small towns where I used to be, uh, they were quite the sight. In came all these donkeys into a gym, and here things went. But what was really funny was the people that agreed to play donkey basketball. Some of the men were too tall for those donkeys. Now, if you think about a baby donkey, you might get the idea that Jesus' feet might have been almost dragging the ground. And I think they might have been. So even though he was coming into town riding a a donkey like a conquering king, all of the accompanying things that a king would bring, the signs of wealth, dominance, power were not present. Instead, this plain, ordinary-looking man was riding this plain, ordinary animal, perhaps too small for him, coming into Jerusalem, sort of like a king and sort of like, eh, king's not all as cracked up to be. He's coming as a politically explosive act in Jerusalem. 
He's coming and they're going to worship him and he knows it. For the first time, he's not going to stop it, according to Mark. He's going to allow it to happen. In fact, he's even kind of encouraging it. Knowing that in that city, they were supposed to be worshiping the emperor, the leader of Rome. So coming into town and declaring this man was explosive in his power and in his danger. And yes, he does invite them to worship him. So here he comes riding into town. And they're all there. They're all there. Oh, they love this man on Sunday, don't they? They wave their palm trees. They put the branches down. Some of them on the side are saying, well, finally, he's going to get around to what we knew he was coming to do. He's going to start acting like our leader. He's going to lead us to a place of prominence. He's going to get us out of the hatred rule of the Roman Empire. This is the Jesus, the king we want. I'm sure that was going on in the background, right? Because that is what they'd been expecting for oh so long. I mean, this was a man who could heal the sinners, cause the dead to rise. This is a man who could do impossible things on earth. This is a man who could restore Israel to its prominent place. Jesus knew all that was going on as he was riding down in that, don- that little donkey into the town, wondering I wonder what was on his mind. The people were gathered to receive him like this great conquering king and this military leader, and they were looking for that. They were there to honor and to praise him. They were there shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. God saves. Boy, it sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds great. It's a rattling cry that it's truth, and they're saying it as if they believed it. They're saying it as if they loved him for who he was. They're saying it as if they understood who Jesus really was coming into town. I believe some truly had fallen in love with Jesus. And I want to say it just that way. Falling in love with Jesus. Now from the other side of the cross, when you talk about falling in love with Jesus... You got to realize that falling in love is kind of a dangerous thing. Falling in love is kind of a romantic ideal. And falling in love looks oh so good when you're courting or when you've been watching that other person across the schoolroom or across the college campus. You know how it was, remember? Or somebody you met after graduating from college at work or in your neighborhood you were introduced to, and you go look at him and go, that's the one. That's the person, and man, am I in love. And what do we all know about people who have fallen in love at those young ages? They don't really have a clue about what they're about to do. (laughs) They think they're really falling in love, and this is the way it'll be. I tell couple after couple who comes in after taking a premarital inventory, when I tell them their highest score is in their idealistic approach to marriage, they look at me like, what do you mean? I mean, you're looking at each other with rose-colored glasses. That's what I mean. You think this guy is something special. He's just another guy. Look at him. (laughs) She looks at him, and what does she say? No, he is different than all the others. And I just say, yeah, right, right, right. She is the apple of my eye. And within five years, they'll be making an appointment to come in and say, I've eaten off that apple so much, but it just keeps coming back, and I'm having a hard time swallowing it. I just can't seem to get over it, you know. 
This is not the woman I married. What happened to her once we went home? It's called romantic love. And people believe that idea of romantic love and falling in love is what love is. But the scriptures are clear that's really not what God is talking about when he talks about loving others or loving him, is it? Because you see, romantic love, if it doesn't give way to true love, marriages have no chance. No chance. You marry someone because of who they are and because of how they make you feel. Truth be known. We still don't know how, why you are married to people that you're attracted to because attraction is a weird thing. Have you ever known anybody that's been married to someone, the marriage fails, and a short time later, a year, year and a half, they start dating someone, and guess what? That someone kind of looks and acts a lot like the other person they were married to. What is it about that? How does that work? It's weird. It's strange. We are attracted to certain things. But trust me. If your spouse had known everything they know about you now, you could very well be single. (laughs) Unless you had made the journey to move over from that romantic falling in love to the kind of committed, loyal, to-the-death kind of love that the Scripture is talking about. Now, these people who were standing around there, they had fallen in love with Jesus, really. That's what they'd fall in love with. Hey, there's a parade in town. This guy Jesus is coming in. Let's run out there and welcome him. Man, isn't he great? Isn't he cool? Where are they going to all be Friday? Where are they going to be Thursday night? Who? Peter will say, who? Peter who? I don't know that guy. I'll follow you to the death. Unless you really mean follow you to the death. Not so much into that. That's a little bit too much for love. Yeah, these people are there and they're excited about Jesus coming. Here he is identifying with him. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. We have to ask ourselves a question though as we're sitting here today. Is why did Jesus ride into Jerusalem and wave the red flag in front of Rome's face in front of the leaders at the synagogue and say... Here I am. I'm Jesus. I'm the one, and you're not. Kind of seems like what his message is. First of all, we know Jesus didn't do that. He didn't come in taunting them. He came humbly, but he might as well have been waving a red flag. We know that. Why did he do it? Because it was God's will or sign of things to come? Did he do it because God wanted him to challenge Rome? Did he do it because... He felt God was calling him to do it? Or did he do it because he had run out of things to do and leading these stubborn Jewish people? Why did he do it? Before we get to the why and the how, there was somebody else who's at this palm ceremony today. And that somebody is us, the church. We know something that the people who were there don't know. We share a memory with Jesus who knew when he got on that donkey and rode into Jerusalem, it would be the last time that he would ride into Jerusalem because he was riding to his death. He was sure of that. There was no doubt in his mind. There was no lack of willingness on his part to do it. But still, 
People could not see the cross because it was in the background. In their minds, not even something to be considered. But in Jesus' mind, he knew what was coming. And so do we. Right? When we come to worship today, Palm Sunday has moved into Passion Sunday as well. For a couple of reasons. One is because the church does not want the body of Christ to forget that Palm Sunday is just the entrance into the life of Jesus' passion, fully expressed on Thursday and Friday night. They also know that many people will not come back to church that week for various reasons. They will not come back on Thursday to share that good, that Monday Thursday meal. They will not come back on Friday to sit quietly and stare into the face of reality. And so they want to introduce the passion into the Palm Sunday. So it's not just a moment of rejoicing, but it's much, much more. We come as, like Jesus, with knowledge of that future. This is a road that will lead to his death. And that changes everything. Now, he, it's not like Jesus hadn't been trying to tell these disciples, especially those closest to him. He had been. He had been telling them that his destiny was suffering, great pain. Remember when he tried to tell him once, Peter said, no, 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 Jesus, no, 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 that's not what we're going to do. And what did Jesus say? Satan, get behind me. He tried to tell him that he was going to be rejected. And he, they're thinking, look, everybody loves you, man. This is great. This is what we've been waiting for. He tried to tell him that he was going to be delivered to his enemies, humiliated, mocked, crucified, and killed, condemned to death. Yet he would rise in three days. But the scripture says that they did not have ears to hear. Now, that's something for us to remember. Sometimes some things are so clear in front of our eyes and so clear in scripture that we can't imagine why we can't see the truth in front of us. And usually it's because we do not have the ears to hear what God is telling us. We refuse the obvious will of the Father because it is not the future that we want. It's not the result we want from our prayers. It's not what we've been looking to accomplish. So it was with these early disciples too. They were there. They knew Jesus had been trying to do something, but they didn't really want to hear about him dying or anything. They wanted to hear about him leading the nation of Israel. They were like everyone else, except they had inside information, as do we 2,000 years later. Not what they wanted. Isaiah had even prophesied about it. In the 50th chapter of 2nd Isaiah, we hear some words that are very much depicting the life of our Savior. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me. I gave my back to those who strike me. What a powerful statement to make. And then he goes on to say, 
and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. When Jesus got on that donkey to ride into town, his face was set like flint. Despite their lack of knowledge and understanding, he knew what he had to do. That's a powerful image of a humble, strong person whose face is set and ready to endure what's coming his way. And it is a model for Christians today when we have to face difficult times in our lives. And you know I love stories, and I especially love war stories. It's a shame John Wayne had to die and get old. In the opposite order of that. You got to leave that. Okay, you got it. But I liked some modern versions too. I love the movie We Were Soldiers. If it's not recorded on your recording machine at home, I'm shocked. Why wouldn't you like that movie? Uh, but there's one scene in it toward the end that Mel Gibson portraying the act of the commander has been fighting against impossible odds from the get-go. As soon as they set foot on land, there were 400 men in the presence, and this is based on a true-to-life story of three to 4,000 Vietnamese soldiers. 400, three, 4,000. Not very good odds, even if Mel Gibson is with you, right? <laughs> so the battle goes on, and they do, they do admirable things, unbelievable things, but it finally gets right down to the end, and the time has come when the enemy has got them encircled, and they know they're going to overwhelm them in the morning. That is their plan. And here's when Mel Gibson takes on a little bit of a persona like I think Jesus is taking on this very day when he rides into Jerusalem. He set his face like flint. His eyes were piercing. And as the dew began to rise in the early morning, expecting a big attack, he looked at the men and he said, fix bayonets. And then he stepped out of that trench and he led them forward into what I think he assumed might very well be their end. But it wasn't. They were not alone. When is the last time in your life that you set your face like flint for the work of the kingdom of God and not for yourself? When is the last time that you were willing to die for what you believed? with what God was calling you to do? When was the last time that life was not easy for you? Not because it couldn't be, but because you made up your mind that the kingdom of God and the furtherance of it was much more important than your own agenda. And you set your mind like flint to accomplish the task that God was calling you to do. I dare say most of us in Western Christianity don't know as much about that as we'd like to talk about it. Most of our risk-taking is done from places of security, financially, economically, 
in terms of friends. Rarely are we called upon to step out for others and for the work of the kingdom of God like was written in that book on extreme prayer we've been reading. Rarely do we pray about kingdom business. Most often we tend to pray about what is good for us. There was nothing good for Jesus about riding into Jerusalem. There was something great for you and for me and for the rest of the world. But it was going to cost him unbelievably. And the church of Jesus Christ must not shrink from that reality. It is on these weeks of the year that any church that does not have a cross in it ought to be ashamed of themselves. And I don't care how many people come there to worship. You cannot take the cross out of Christianity unless you want to take Jesus out of Christianity. You cannot continue to be a Christian like you might be the Rotary Club, except in the Rotary Club you have to be present or you, you, you get fixed costly. I thought about imp- implementing the Rotary Club rule for church <laughs> many, many times. They go out of their way to make up when they miss, for goodness sakes. It's not about what you can get by coming to church. It's about you coming to worship and to praise the one who gave you the example of giving yourself to the point of death for the God you love. Just be thankful you live where you don't have to risk death every time you gather for worship. Some places they still do. Some places in Pakistan are very Scary. If you're going to talk about being a Christian, you could die. And not just there, but in many other places as well. But in this country, it's so easy to be a Christian. We have to work hard just to learn what sacrifice means. We do. And churches love to appeal to how people want to be given the kingdom. I know churches that are filled with people where they never talk about the cross. They always talk about the joy of following Jesus. Do-dah, do-dah. Palm Sunday morning every Sunday. Wow. What a biblical... Let me have some water. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross... And follow me. That's not a cross of joy. That's a cross of giving your life for the cause. Period. We think, how could he do that? Wow. I mean, I have a hard time giving up my golf game to come to church on real pretty days like today. I'm going to end with another passage of Scripture. From the New Testament, written by Paul. How did he do it? Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant or slave, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus didn't walk into Jerusalem and become overwhelmed by those who would take him captive. Far from it. The scriptures are clear. He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. It's an action he took. He didn't have to be a servant. He took it upon himself to be a servant. He made the decision to be a servant to others and to his father. And he obeyed the call of real love, that kind of foreverlasting love that's real, that kind of self-giving love that pours itself out as it empties himself on others, pouring itself out over and over again. The well never ran dry until the last drop of blood had hit the ground. That's what Palm Sunday's about. Bayonets are fixed in the name of Jesus. But Jesus threw his bayonet on the ground. And he ran, rode into that town and he just gave himself up. He gave himself. He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. It was not made for him to do it. They could never have done it if he had not wanted them to. He let them do it because that was the kind of love that was just flowing out of him all the time. This choosing to love is the only kind of love that's everlasting. You know, you see my wife. Should I have her stand? Does everybody know who my wife is by now? I talk about her occasionally in sermons, and I hate for her to go to be missed. But she's a pretty little thing. Stand up and let them see you, honey, in all your glory. Oh, go ahead and stand up. No, go ahead and stand up. Just go ahead. Doesn't she look sweet? I mean, she looks so adorable. And watch her play with my grandchildren. She's so adorable. But let me tell you something. After 43 years of living with that woman, 42 years of living with that woman, there's another side. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. But you know what? I committed to loving all sides of her on March the 10th, 1973. And she committed to, she couldn't love me on all sides because there's no side to me. I'm just kind (laughs) of. And even though it's a strain, I still feel loved by that woman. Sorry, Jesus. (laughs) But the reality is it hadn't been easy. You don't stay married 42 years easily. Trust me. Oh, I've met one or two couples in my 60-something years who said, we've never had an argument. I just want to say, liar, liar, your pants are on fire. You know, never had a crossword. Yeah, right. If that's the case, one of you is a doormat. Which one is it? Lie down right now. People are going to have an argument. People are going to disagree. People are going to get upset. For no other reason, they all have family, and they get together sometimes, and they're weird. (laughs) They're going to find something they have to fight about. But you know what? At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Because at the end of the day, whatever comes between Sally and I, 
gets discarded. So if family members want to put us in a place where we're uncomfortable, it ain't going to happen. They will be moved a step farther away. Because other than our Savior, even our kids can't. Okay, maybe the kids can. But nobody else. No, really nobody else, including the kids. They come third and they know it. Spouses are second and God is first, period. If that's not the way you want to live your life, I understand it. But just know this. Here's the good news. You don't have to live that way. Jesus didn't have to live that way. He didn't have to do it. I'm going to cut in front of him this day. But he chose to do it. You don't have to do it either. You can pretend you love Jesus and have this romantic love affair, and whenever it's convenient, you can serve him. When it's not so convenient, you can go on about your business. Many Christians do. Those who are just barely going to get into heaven. But that's not the way it's intended to be. Right? She said right. It's intended that you will choose to empty yourself and put others before you, more than just your children and your spouse, your neighbors, people you work with, the people you don't even know yet, you'll put them first. That's what's intended. You don't have to do it. Nobody's going to make you. They didn't make Jesus. We're not going to make you. But if you want to obey the call of love in your life, and if you want to know the fullness of receiving that kind of love back, then you're going to have to make the same choice that Jesus made. Anything else is just not enough. Now, are you going to Easter? And if you are, then we've got to walk through the darkness a good, th- good Thursday, Monday Thursday, and we've got to sit down on the hillside. And on Friday, we've got to remember that Jesus died for us. If we don't do that, we're not going to really have Easter. Oh, we'll have a great service and we'll have great music, but we won't have really have Easter until we've journeyed by that cross.